Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash WJJ. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS. Welcome to this Peer Voice Talks on Obesity. This activity comprises two presentations featuring Professor Koshik Ray and Professor Erin Mikos. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, my name's Koshik Ray. I'm Professor of Public Health and a consultant cardiologist at Imperial College London in the UK. I'm also president of the European Atherosclerosis Society. And what I hope to do over the next 10 minutes or so is really to try and convince you why cardiologists should be concerned about obesity. Now, we already see these patients. We recognize these patients in our clinic already by the comorbidities that they bring with them, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, dyslipidemia, and worse still, when they have cardiovascular disease. And we're probably very good at recognizing those and treating those aggressively. We can manage hypertension, dyslipidemia, and better control diabetes. What we should perhaps be thinking about doing is working upstream, preventing some of the drivers of these risk factors in the first place, namely obesity in our patient population. Not only can we make a difference, and it's not just cosmetic, and it's a question of looking at waist circumference or BMI, but actually losing that extra weight and improving that changes the entire risk profile of our patients. Now, we well know over the last few years how easily we've recognized the dangers of COVID, for example, but perhaps we don't recognize the dangers that obesity is going to bring. And this in itself is going to carry a much greater life threat, lifetime threat to human health. So we can get this information easily from the numbers, and they're really quite compelling. So, for example, if you look in 2005 at the number of individuals who were reported to be overweight, that number would have been approximately 900 million. And if you look at the number of individuals who were uh, obese, that number would have been approximately 400 million. In as little as seven years, so by 2030, both of these numbers are going to increase substantially so that the number of people that we will have living on this planet who are overweight will be 1.35 billion and the number of individuals who are reported to be obese will be approximately 573 million. So a substantial increase. Now, when we think about all of this, probably the best way to look at the impact, I think, is through life years lost or the quality of those life years that are left. And it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman, this will impact both genders, this will impact people of different ages. Uh, importantly, whether you are in your 20s, 30s and 40s, or whether you are 40 and above. And you can look at this in a graded fashion. So as you move, for example, from looking at somebody who is overweight to obese to very obese, you start to lose about three years of life if you are overweight. And if you are very obese, you lose close to nine years of life if you're a man. And actually, if you start now to look at the quality of those life years that you have left, the impact is even more 
substantial because now basically you're talking about six years of reduced quality of life if you're overweight and in your 40s or 50s. But actually this number approaches almost two decades. So 18 years as a man and 19 years as a woman. And it doesn't matter if this actually happens when you're older because the impact is actually fairly similar. So we've got to start thinking about gaining those life years back. Now, what is it that is really contributing to all of this? Well, some part of of the cardiovascular risk may be due to the risk factors that we're all aware of, hypertension, lipids, glucose abnormalities. But we know alongside the cardiovascular profile, there are other things as well. Depression, anxiety, maybe respiratory disorders, things like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, arthritis, back pain. The quality of the life that is left, if you will, is really of, of not a very good quality. So we have to think about basically addressing all of these. Now, when we start to try and tease this out, is it just a question of all of these other factors or is there something that is intrinsic to obesity that is really driving uh, some of these additional risk? So if you take groups of individuals who have, if you like, an identical risk factor profile where blood pressure is not elevated, where lipids are not abnormal, where glucose levels are not abnormal, but these two individuals differ simply by the fact that one individual is of a normal BMI and one individual is obese. Now, the person with obesity will have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease in the form of coronary disease, strokes, and heart failure, even with a normal metabolic profile. So there's no such thing as, if you will, a metabolically healthy obese individual. If you happen, in addition to a higher BMI, let's say develop abnormal lipids, and that can happen because when BMI goes up, your non-HDL goes up, and that basically increases your risk of atherosclerosis. You also lose protection in the form of HDL cholesterol. That falls. Your blood pressure can also go up. So not only, if you like, is just having... Uh, obesity and a high BMI, a bad thing. But then if you develop those additional risk factors, this is then multiplicative over and above what we see. Now, what might be driving that? Well, some part of that might be related to inflammation. And we know that people with obesity, because they have excess adipose tissue, will essentially produce inflammatory cytokines like interleukin-6, and this is basically, we can measure the effects of this with things like C-reactive protein in blood. We know that people with diabetes, really the main driver of this is going to be the BMI. And again, this problem that we have currently with an increasing prevalence of diabetes really results from obesity. So at the moment, for example, with a global prevalence of about 11%, about 1 in 20 deaths is attributable to diabetes. Now, as the prevalence of diabetes increases and goes to 40%, one in five deaths will be attributable to diabetes. Now, if you're aged 40 and you develop diabetes, you lose half a decade of life, half of which is lost due to cardiovascular diseases. So the question then becomes, what about or how much weight should we actually lose? And 
as a minimum, the amount that we should be basically trying to lose is about 5% in weight. And that number, if that approached 10%, we would achieve far, far greater benefits. Now, it's very hard to achieve that 5%, but we can see that if we actually get beyond 10%, perhaps some of these important conditions like diabetes would actually start to improve. We can see from data from the look-ahead trial, for example, that amongst those individuals that achieved 10% or more in weight loss, they achieved better cardiovascular outcomes. Now, what we can see there is that we've got two extremes. We've got what is achieved with diet and lifestyle, and then what's achievable with bariatric surgery. And somewhere in between, is, if you like, the role of medication. And we're only treating a fraction of the people that actually have obesity currently. So we know that diet and lifestyle, although that's going to be at the forefront, most people may find it difficult to achieve that. So what do we do with those individuals? Do we leave them? And bariatric surgery may not be an option for those individuals. So we recognize this as being a challenge and major guidelines like the European Society of Cardiology, for example, they recommend obviously diet and lifestyle, first of all, but they also recommend bariatric surgery increasingly. Now, alongside this tsunami of diabetes is this underlying challenge, which is obesity. And that's really the core. And that is really why some of the declines in cardiovascular disease that we've seen over the years, that basically may actually start to subside. So unless we tackle obesity, we are not going to be able to really uh, build on all of these improvements that we've seen over the past two decades. And not only will it affect the quality of life of our patients, but it will actually incur significant healthcare costs. So what I hope that I've been able to convince you about is how important, uh, how important obesity is, not just to diabetes and risk factors, but there is no such thing as a metabolically obese uh, metabolically healthy obese individuals. And what you'll hear in the next presentation is my colleague, Dr. Erin Michos, who will basically be talking about some of the different approaches to this. Hi, I'm Dr. Erin Michos. I'm the Associate Director of Preventive Cardiology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. And I'm really pleased to be part of this special program to talk about obesity. Obesity is a serious, life-limiting but treatable disease. Obesity is associated with a number of serious health consequences, including sleep apnea, osteoarthritis, cancer, diabetes, as well as cardiovascular disease, including heart failure. Now, Dr. Kosh Ray has already made the argument uh, about why cardiologists should be concerned about treating obesity in our patients that obesity is far more than just a cosmetic problem. And we as cardiologists, it's our job to help our patients reduce their cardiovascular risk and prevent cardiovascular events. So the next 10 minutes or so, we'll consider what cardiologists can do, why this is in our wheelhouse to address. And if we can manage obesity in our patients, we can make a lot of things better for them and their other aspects of their life. Now, lifestyle interventions, including behavioral modifications, medical nutrition therapy, physical activity, 
are fundamental cornerstone for weight management and remain first line. But unfortunately, um, weight loss through lifestyle interventions alone can be difficult to achieve and maintain, and unfortunately, many patients regain the weight. Now, bariatric surgery is another option. It is indicated for persons who have class 3 obesity, which is a BMI above 40, or class 2 obesity, which is a BMI above 35, when it's associated with one other weight-related comorbidity, such as sleep apnea, hypertension, or diabetes. But unfortunately, um, bariatric surgery is not for everyone. Um, It's expensive, it's invasive, um, and can be associated with some potential complications. And so it's really emerging as an important tool is pharmacotherapy for weight loss that's indicated for persons who have a BMI above 30 or a BMI above 27 with another serious weight-related comorbidity. Now, obesity has long been viewed as a a lifestyle choice, and patients uh, who carry this uh, diagnosis are stigmatized. But it may seem intuitive that obesity is just the consequences of too many calories in versus too many calories out, but it's far more complicated than that. Obesity is a complex problem that has genetic biological, hormonal, environmental, and societal factors. It's really a, it can be a brain problem. The brain is the major organ that regulates how much food we take in and how many calories that we store. And so once patients get to a certain weight set point, again, it can be very difficult to lose weight by lifestyle interventions alone. So it's really chemistry, not character. It's not just a failure of willpower. Pharmacotherapy, such as these GLP-1 receptor agonists, when added to lifestyle interventions, can result in clinically meaningful weight loss and may actually approve adherence to lifestyle changes when patients start to feel better. That these new class of medications um, that are effective can help motivate patients to re-engage in weight loss efforts when prior weight loss strategies have been ineffective or unsustainable. So what is a clinically meaningful weight loss? So studies define weight loss of 5% of more as being clinically meaningful. In this range, we can see improvement in a number of cardiovascular risk factors, such as blood pressure, lipids, blood glucose. In the look-ahead trial, um, achievement of a 10% weight loss at one year translated to about a 20% reduction in cardiovascular risk. And more weight loss can confer additional benefits. So when we look across the spectrum of tools, um, the older um, anti-obesity medications uh, could achieve weight loss in the range, you know, an average of 3 to 9%. Um, I mentioned uh, bariatric surgery is still an important tool we have, and patients uh, can achieve up to you know, 25% weight loss with, with surgery. Now, the GLP-1 receptor agonist semaglutide, which I'll talk more about, 
has been shown to confer about 13% uh, weight loss or about uh, 15 kilos or 30 pounds on average. And terzepatide, which is a dual uh, GLP-1, GIP agonist, uh, can confer around 20% weight loss. So we're getting in the range with these new pharmacological agents uh, achieving levels of weight loss that are close to approaching what we can achieve with surgical therapy. Evidence supports the efficacy of GLP-1 receptor agonists for clinically meaningful weight loss. The STEP trial evaluated semaglutide versus placebo for weight loss. It enrolled over 1,900 patients who did not have diabetes but had overweight or obesity defined as a BMI above 30 or a BMI above 27 in the setting of other, one other serious weight-related comorbidity. Um, semaglutide was uh, titrated up to a dose of 2.4 milligrams subcutaneously per week. Now, compared to uh, placebo, um, semaglutide was able to achieve that clinically meaningful weight loss of 5% or more of 86% compared to 31% of participants in the placebo arm. So this translates to about 13% weight loss overall, on average uh, about 13 kilograms or 28 pounds of weight loss on average compared to placebo. Now, um, we know from this class of medications that GLP-1 receptor agonists can cause gastrointestinal side effects, and we do see that here with more nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation um, in the semaglutide arm versus the placebo. Now, these side effects usually are seen on initiation of the agent or titration, but usually once patients achieve a maintenance dose, these symptoms tend to get better. Also in this trial, there was a little bit more gallbladder disorders with semaglutide than placebo, but the overall events uh, were low. But notably, there was no increased risk with hypoglycemia. Now we know that this agent, semaglutide, we use it to treat type 2 diabetes. But interestingly, in patients who don't have diabetes, these agents, these GLP-1 receptor agonists, don't cause hypoglycemia as a sole agent. Now, another emerging weight loss pharmacotherapy is terzepatide. Um, this is a dual agonist, a GLP-1 receptor agonist, GIP dual agonist. This was evaluated in the CERMOT trial and showed that the highest dose, 15 milligrams uh, per week compared to placebo, conferred about a 20% reduction in, in weight loss. Again, very significant uh, weight loss with these pharmacological agents. And similar to the other GLP-1 receptor agonists, also did have increased uh, GI side effects compared to placebo, no increased risk of hypoglycemia. Now, in persons who have type 2 diabetes, the GLP-1 receptor agonists have been shown that they can actually reduce major adverse cardiovascular events, and thus we consider them as cardiovascular prevention tools. That meta-analyses in persons with diabetes have shown that these GLP-1 receptor agonists can reduce major adverse cardiovascular events by 14%, including reduction in myocardial infarction and stroke. They also reduced all-cause mortality by 12%. Now, the mechanisms for this cardiovascular risk reduction isn't quite um, fully understood. 
Some of this may be due to improvement in traditional cardiovascular risk factors, such as improvement in blood pressure and blood lipids and body weight and, of course, blood glucose. But it's also thought that the GLP-1 receptor agonists may have anti-atherosclerotic effects, anti-inflammatory effects, and uh, cardioprotection. Now, we don't know yet if in persons who don't have diabetes, whether the GLP-1 receptor agonists can also reduce cardiovascular events. We do know that they can help with weight loss, as, as I showed you. Uh, but there is an ongoing cardiovascular outcome trial designed to test this question. It's called the SELECT trial. It's enrolling over 17,000 patients who don't have diabetes, but do have cardiovascular disease. So they're at high cardiovascular risk. Uh, comparing semaglutide 2.4 milligrams per week versus placebo, and patients are being followed for major adverse cardiovascular events. It is a event-different trial, but it's anticipated that it may take like five years to complete, and then we'll have some more information informing whether the GLP-1 receptor agonists can reduce cardiovascular outcomes in persons without diabetes too who have obesity. So some key considerations. As I mentioned, patients often experience gastrointestinal side effects as they begin therapy. And this is why we start low and go slow, and usually this gets better once we get them up to a dose they can maintain. Now, the risk of hypoglycemia, as I mentioned, with GLP-1 receptor agonists as a solo agent is very low for most patients. Now, in patients who have type 2 diabetes, who are treated with insulin or sulfonylureas, we may need some dose adjustment of those medications to onboard the GLP-1 receptor agonists. There's some theoretical concerns about medullary thyroid cancer based on preclinical or animal models. That's in the FDA uh, warnings. Um, actually, this is a very uncommon cancer in humans. The most common thyroid cancer is actually papillary thyroid cancer. Um, and to date, in all of the GLP-1 trials pulled together, we don't see uh, this increased cancer risk. Now, the real potential to barriers relates to cost and preauthorization processes. Uh, we've done this before, for example, with the PCSK9 inhibitor therapy for lipid management. So in summary, we have effective therapies, these GLP-1 receptor agonists, in combination with lifestyle interventions that are really changing the narrative of how we treat obesity, this disease. And there's actually a lot more cardiologists in the United States than there are endocrinologists and obesity medicine specialists. And patients who have a cardiovascular risk are actually far more likely to have a clinical encounter with a cardiologist than an endocrinologist or an obesity specialist. And so that's why we need to get involved. When cardiologists treat obesity, we are treating cardiovascular risk. And that should be our call to action that we need to get into this space and make sure that our patients who have this disease of obesity have the full spectrum of health care they need and they deserve. Thank you. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.